Uh, a gigantic weight has been lifted off my shoulder. First and foremost, I'm happy my friend Cole Cabana, um, who I think was, uh, you know, dragged into this for silly reasons. Uh, but just in general, I'm just super appreciative and, and happy that the, the jury came to that verdict. I think I had truth on my side. Obviously I did and common sense prevailed and uh, I'm just I'm just happy. So I, I appreciate everybody who I guess was in my corner uh, and, and knew and continues to know the truth. Uh, I can't wait to, you know, put it all behind me. I wanted out years ago and I still feel the same way. I just want to move on with my life. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Rewind to SmackDown. It's John Pollock here alongside Wei Ting, and we are we are on the road. Uh, on the road, yes. Kind of. Yeah, yeah, it, in your parents' home. Uh, yes, we have, we've gone from uh, the post office to my parents' house. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. This after, is- after Bell tried to wreak havoc on our show on what turned out to be an extremely newsworthy day in pro wrestling. Oh, I'll say, yeah. I mean, really a bad day for Bell... To come over to my neighborhood to install their new fiber cable line and, and uh, in, in in effect um, canceling and affecting my actual internet. But wait a minute, you're not you don't use Bell. I'm not with Bell. I'm with Rogers. They just fucked the whole neighborhood up. So uh, I'm yeah. We we had to scramble today basically to to find a different place. And thankfully, John, your parents were nice enough to allow us to come in here. Yes. Yeah. So uh, yay for parents and. We're going to start off with the biggest story of the day, not Becky Lynch defeating Charlotte Flair via Disarmor, but rather uh, the verdict came in on Tuesday in the CM Punk Colt Cabana defamation case, the jury rendering their verdict in favor of Punk and Cabana, and thus this three and a half year case has ended just days before Punk is going to walk into an octagon and fight. He is in the middle of a weight cut. He has been training two times a day while he's been in court. Um, first of all, any any surprise to this outcome? The closing arguments went down on Tuesday, and it took about two hours for the jury to come to a decision. Um, I don't I don't know about really surprise, um, but uh, I, I I think it doesn't really surprise me. But then again, I mean. Uh, I feel like, and we'll talk a bit more about this with uh, uh, Nick Houseman and, and Ross. Yes, who, uh, Ross Berman and Nick Houseman of WrestleZone are going to be joining us momentarily. They were in the courthouse today, also interviewed Cabana and Punk after the decision, so we will chat with them in a couple of minutes. But yeah, uh, to me, during the closing arguments, I was thinking about this afterwards, the fact of you know how does a jury help or hurt? Punk and Cabana, um, not being there to hear their testimony. It's kind of hard to decipher how they came across. But I did think during the closing arguments, um, the plaintiff side, Dr. Amon's side, they were trying to seek damages for $1 per stream mm-hmm. of the podcast. And it would come to a figure of around $3.9 million. And then on top of that, seeking out punitive damages. So I think if you are a jury member... And you are looking at a figure uh, that is in the high seven figures. That's certainly daunting for what is a podcast interview that you can look at. And were there exaggerations in the podcast by Punk? I think most people can agree. Um, but what were the damages? You know, and wh- how do where does that amount come from? One dollar per download. Yes, that was a figure that they they came to that conclusion of. And yes. Um, Dr. Eamon's side was stating that 
Yes, he has not suffered monetary damages. He did not seek out therapy. He sleeps well at night. And it was essentially down to online backlash he received. And I'm not trying to minimize his side either, because he certainly has taken the brunt of a lot of that podcast, which if you're put in that role, you're not really a public figure if you're Dr. Amen. And and thus, uh, was he affected by this podcast? I, I think so. I think that's fair to say. To the tune of $3.9 million, I think that's that's tougher. And I think that weighs heavily on a jury when you are making a decision that, for someone in the case of Colt Cabana, um, that we don't know what his... Um, what his insurance is like, if he has insurance. I mean, that is um, that is a life-altering figure, a life-altering judgment uh, to make against someone, especially in the case of Cabana, that I think most people can look at that was uh, dragged into this thing. And there was no solid case made that he knowingly published false statements. Mm-hmm. I mean, if this had really gone through, I feel like it would have opened the floodgates for other people to comb through podcasts and think about maybe what... Well, uh, anybody who's received a negative tweet as a result of a podcast might might be looking at this totally differently. Uh, but it's that didn't happen. Um, so what what do you think? Uh, should we go to Ross and Nick right now? Do I hear from them now? Yeah, I think so. Okay, these uh, Nick Houseman and Ross Berman from WrestleZone, um, they were between the two of them. They were in the courthouse um, every day with the exception of the very first day that the trial began, which was uh, Dr. Amon's testimony. So uh, we had a chance to speak with them earlier tonight about the case and the verdict coming down on Tuesday. The big news on Tuesday was the verdict coming down in the civil trial involving CM Punk and Colt Cabana jury ruling in their favor in the lawsuit that was filed by Dr. Christopher Amon. And for so many people, they were following this coverage through WrestleZone.com, and we wanted to have uh, two of the individuals attached to that site who have been at the courthouse day in, day out, sitting through all of the testimony. We get the verdict on Tuesday. First of all, we have Nick Hausman, the executive editor at WrestleZone, as well as Ross Berman, both men joining us here on the show. And guys, uh, it has been a whirlwind uh, week and a half, and now we have a verdict. Lots to discuss. Uh, first of all, I'll start with you, Nick. Um, just going into this, if I was to take you back to a week ago Tuesday, uh, did this case kind of, did you have any expectation going in of what to expect? No, I had no idea, John. Uh, I mean, I knew that the uh, trial date was set for sometime soon, but when it was announced, it caught a lot of people off guard. It caught, me, it caught us off guard. Uh, the only reason I found out about it was because there's a great uh, courtroom uh, investigative journalist called Greg Platt. Pratt. Pratt. Yep. Greg- Gregory Pratt. At Royal Pratt uh, on Twitter. Uh, he, he had started covering the case on the very uh, – he hadn't really started covering it. He kind of popped his head into the courtroom and realized the case was happening and that nobody was there. And, uh, you know, I it was late at night when I found out that that was the case. Uh, I just started – Hitting up uh, some friends that I knew that may know where uh, this court case was happening, and uh, I, I found myself in the in the courtroom the next day. And you know, it, it's a very specialized style of journalism that comes with courtroom journalism, and uh, it was it was very daunting, kind of walking in blind blind the first day. I, I did uh, the best I could. I, I think it got a good response, but Ross was really the one. Uh, I had I can't run WrestleZone and, and be in a courtroom at the same time, it's not going to work. So Ross was 
just an awesome fit. And 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 truthfully, I you know that that'll be the most I hope to say. Ross really did the you know lion's share of the work on this case. He he was in there uh, four of the six days that the wrestle zone was there, and you know really recorded all of it. So I, I turned most of over the whatever questions you have about the case to Ross, honestly. Yeah, Ross, I want to get kind of a sense from you of kind of just how exhausting this case was being in there in the courtroom day in and day out. We're kind of following it kind of from an outsider's view, just seeing kind of your your summaries, your daily summaries. But uh, kind of take us into the courtroom of what it was like, you know, each day, like as this was suddenly going into the weekend and we were going to get a second week out of this trial. Uh, well, it, it a it just it kind of fell into my lap on uh, Wednesday night, and then uh, thir- you know Thursday morning I was in the courtroom, less than less than you know fifteen feet away from Punk and uh, Cabana and all uh, the whole legal team and everything, and so it was very very jarring, very surreal. I, I come from uh, an unusual background. Both my parents are lawyers, so it was a very kind of full circle moment for me of like I. I showed up at WrestleZone covering basically Japanese wrestling and you know a couple other things, and now here I am reporting on a trial. That's why the notes are so warts and all, is because I didn't know what to leave in, I didn't know what to leave out, and so I just gave I gave y'all, if you're reading that, pretty much everything that's in my notebook. What was the scene like at, at, on, on that day that you first showed up? Was it just you? Was there other media? Were there fans? At the, it was just attendance? me. It was, it was literally just it was me and Greg Pratt from the Tribune and then a, a few law students and lawyers would wander in on their lunch breaks or when they're free. Uh, but other than that, it was it was just me and Greg and then the legal teams and then the jury. It was it. I was I was shocked that Friday, Friday, I think it was Friday. Yeah, we got a full case, a full courtroom full of eighth graders that just wandered in <laughs> at one point looking for it. You know, it was civics class or something. They needed a they they needed a court to watch. They needed a trial to watch that didn't have too many graphic images in it. And this one was all text, so <laughs> they got there just in time for Colt Cabana to identify CM Punk's camo shorts. It. it I don't know how to put it other than it was the kind of trial where I have learned definitively that a golf ball is smaller than a baseball. They confirmed it many, many times. I mean, I go back to that album from the presidents of the United States and that song Lump. I will never listen to it again without thinking about CM Punk and the amount that I have written about this man's ass in the last week and a half that there was an ungodly amount of focus on this on this lump. Um, As you kind of are kind of coming out of this, uh, Ross, are there mm-hmm. are there certain figures in this that maybe um, stood out more to you for their testimony, like ones that, that really left an impression today by the time we got to the closing arguments, the ones that really did leave uh, an impression in your estimation on the jury? I, I would say the, the person that probably left the biggest impression on the jury had to be Punk. I mean, he's a very natural storyteller, and so he was able to really convey his story and his truth of the story without without coming off in an overly in a performative way like you would expect someone who's – I mean, he's a trained storyteller, a trained performer, and the fact that he was still very human on the, uh, on the witness stand I think helped his case a lot. Hmm. How about the the moment um, during his testimony where he actually breaks down crying? It seems like this is a, a part of his life going back to 2014 and his exit from the WWE. That was certainly he was in a very different place in his life. And this seemed like this was him uh, reliving a lot of what led him to this exit from pro wrestling that he has shown zero signs of wanting to return to. 
it felt to me like uh, 2014 through 2013, or 2013 through 2014, that kind of general period that was covered in the trial isn't one maybe CM Punk likes to go back to. He, he would get a lot, he would pretty much break down or get very uncomfortable when asked about his mental state in, in 2014. So I, I, I definitely got the vibe that he, that was a, a very trying period for him, even more so than he would let on in, in testimony. I'm curious to know uh, also what, wh- how you felt uh, Colt Cabana took in the, the entire experience from seeing him for these several days. Cabana, for me, always looked more stressed. Yeah, no, he Punk. was. He seemed very stressed out, especially— Punk be- was stressed for different reasons. I mean, uh, you're, you're looking at Punk, and Punk's got to fight you know, in like five days. Well, but also, Punk's legal team was doing so much more of the pulling for the defense case that I think it stressed Colt out. You think so? Well, yeah, because when I was there... Because, like, I thought Cabana... I, I actually... I thought Cabana's legal team did a really good job. They were they were great, but the days I was there, he was not as involved as Punk's legal team. He, he didn't have any questions for a lot of uh, the people. He was letting... Uh, uh, Punk's legal team do the majority of the pulling on the days well, that I was. I'm not saying he's I, he was a very good attorney. I'm not. Well, s- but that's the thing. I I think that I think that Amon's team like they were doing a lot of work. Yes. Right. Yes. They were working very hard to make a case. I like that Cabana's lawyer was kind of like, I don't need to do a lot. I'm always not going to take much of your time. Yes. But, Here, here's a thing that doesn't make any sense. But when you're staring down a a what I think they eventually said it was going to be a three point nine eight nine million dollar settlement. You, right. You that's, want that's why you, you look want at, an attorney that's going to be a pit bull, a bulldog, someone that's going to keep fighting for you instead of saying, "Well, I don't really have any questions. They already covered it." And so I think that that was part of the reason why he seemed so much more tense than Punk's legal team. His his case, his side was not. Uh, was not as vocal. It didn't need to be. It worked out very well for him, and, and in fact, it it is probably one of the reasons he won the case, but if you're sitting there minute by minute with this million-dollar settlement hanging over your head, I gotta believe that it's going to really really wear on you, whereas Punk's legal yeah. team at every, every turn, whether it was being a, whether it was facing down objections from Eamon's counselor, whether it was just cross-examining Eamon's uh, attorney's witnesses, he, he could definitely hang his hat a little bit more on his legal team, whereas Colt's whole thing was, look, I just put out the podcast. Which is the argument that he used and the argument yep. that won the day. Exactly. And, and I thought it was great. But you can you only... Know, I thought it, it was amazing. I was like, yeah, this guy is... This guy's like, yeah, look, this doesn't make any sense. I don't want to waste a moment of your time. I'm literally just going to continue to remind you mm-hmm. that... Yeah, but if this is this is unimportant. But thing. even still, if you're in the passenger seat of a boat and the the ship starts getting rocky and it starts throwing all over the place, and the captain is still like, "No, no, we're staying this course," you're gonna wonder from time to time, "Are you are you sure?" Obviously, the captain got them there. Obviously, he knew the course. But I'm just I'm just trying to speak to Colt, why Colt Cabana seemed so stressed out on the days that we were there. And, and it's a great point to bring up for people that were not in there. The fact that Punk and Cabana did have separate lawyers. I mean, they were not just being represented by one uh, defense attorney in all of this. And uh, Ross, going back to you, the fact that this was a jury trial, I was thinking about this afterwards of – if you anticipated going into the closing arguments that if you remove a jury, if you feel that there would have been a better case for for Eamon's side of things where he was it was kind of established, you know, his role in the WWE mm-hmm. has not gone uh, has not been changed. The mm-hmm. talent still thinks of him the same way that his kind of argument was, well, I faced a lot of online backlash and I wonder how much 
Punk, uh, you know, with his testimony, played to that jury, and that if you remove a jury from this, did it play? Was it a better chance of Eamon winning this case? I, I, you know, I think it would have been a little bit more up in the air if it was just up to the judge. She seemed to, I, I don't know. She seemed to not have a lot of patience for the case, uh, as some of the, you know, a lot of legal professionals sometimes don't but it, it it seemed it seemed like the jury definitely made people more willing cm punk a guy who comes from lockport who really fought his way up to the top of his industry and then moved on to a whole other one i think that definitely helped tip the scales in his favor whereas you know I, I, I don't know the judge's background but i can i can assume doc you know whether it's a doctor of law or a doctor of medicine Doctors understand each other, and whether she would have uh, ruled in favor of Eamon or in favor of Punk and Cabana, I don't know. But I think it's if you take the jury out of there, it does go up in the air a lot. Yeah, and I think once people saw the the number that the plaintiffs were seeking, like that's a very staggering number that comes yes. out of a, a wrestling podcast. That I think that that's a pretty that's a pretty sobering number if you're a jury to look at. Like this is uh, life changing money and. Uh, to, to be in charge of that kind of a decision, I'm, I'm certain that that weighed heavy on them. Uh, just getting back to you, Nick, uh, and we won't keep you guys too long here. Like, I, I know that there was uh, several more media members there on the final day, but you guys have received a lot of credit. Can you just tell me a bit about um, kind of just WrestleZone being front and center? You guys really own this, this case and this coverage, and I, I think you guys presented it in a really well-balanced way. You just put the notes out there. There wasn't a whole lot of editorializing to it. Um, just tell me, kind of running WrestleZone, uh, what the last week and a half or so has been like for the site. This is a very interesting case for me because, uh, you know, with the, the curtain completely burned here, you know, I used to do improv comedy here in Chicago with Colt Cabana. I mean, Colt and I are not unfamiliar with one another. Um, and... Punk used to come to a lot of my comedy shows here in Chicago. And, you know, it's never like we've fallen out of each other's favors. But, you know, I've moved on more in the wrestling world than the comedy world. And we just kind of, at different points, have done figure eights around each other. But, uh, you know, we found ourselves here uh, where there's this huge case in Chicago. And they're both involved. And I do run WrestleZone. And I, I like to think we keep a, you know, pretty good relationship not with WWE, but with all wrestling promotions. I, I try to do the best job I can of getting WrestleZone engaged with uh, the top promotions in the world. And, you know, you want to do your best to do it straight and not sensationalize it. We weren't going to be taking a lot of photos. We weren't going to try to catch people outside the courtroom. We knew what the guardrails were. We knew that we could go in there and do, honestly, what I think wrestling people probably do better than anybody else, and that's play-by-play. -play. Yep, blow-by-blow. Blow. Call call the action, right? Go in there and write out what is happening. And I did the best job I could the first day, and I uh, could not be happier that that opened the door for Ross to do it for four more days after and for me to come back uh, in the end and... Uh, put some nice finishing touches on there with the, the Colt Cabana and, and the CM Punk interviews that we did outside the courthouse. But um, 
you know, we crashed the site today. That was pretty. Yeah, yeah, we the crashed today. Yeah, it came back. We we brought it back. Um, but but I, I I value Punk. I value Cabana. I value WWE. These are all commodities that are are doing their best uh, to to bring joy around the world. I, I genuinely think that for all three entities, but yeah. unfortunately, they found themselves in this turmoil here. So. Uh, you know, we we just did our best to to cover it for the historical thing that it was, and uh, hopefully we get to cover mis- more historical events, no matter what they may be, uh, in the future. Because that's that's what WrestleZone should be. We are a repository for all the top news and, and headlines for for all of wrestling history. It did kind of have a Forrest Gump feeling to it. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Uh, last question is for you, Ross. Any surprise when when the verdict was rendered, the amount of time the jury took, um, and, and just kind of your closing thoughts covering this uh, as closely as you did? I think that this is something that uh, people are going to be fascinated and talking about for quite some time, this case. Uh, I wasn't – honestly, once the uh, – once Eamon's attorney had, had named the $3.989 million that they were saying would sounded fair to them, I had – a I had a pretty good feeling that it was going to probably go for punk, and then when the jury took less than two hours to deliberate in in defamation cases, especially ones where the jury has to decide on a dollar amount, it's not going to take two hours to uh, decide a dollar amount. It's going to take a lot more than that no matter what counsel recommends. And so that gave me a pretty good feeling that it was going to be – going to be in favor of the defendants uh as far as my my kind of closing summation it's it feels like it feels like uh the wrestling podcast world whether they know it or not had a giant weight lifted off them today because basically the way that this whole the way that this whole case was presented had Eamon's attorney won it would have pulled wrestling journalism from the weird kind of news entertainment gray area that it's always been and it would have pulled it straight into journalism, and then no matter what, whether it is uh, the you know the, from the smallest or to the biggest, if someone says something on a podcast you didn't like, that they there was then going to be a clear road to have either that podcast or the person who said it financially crippled. They valued that at a dollar per a dollar per stream, a dollar per download for every amount of discri- uh, exactly. Dis- Defamatory things you said, and so if they, if they, if Eamon's attorney had won this, it would have set a precedent that would have seen people just clear a defamation uh, route right through all of wrestling podcasting. And so everyone that runs a wrestling podcast and I can sleep a little easier knowing that now there is actually a case that has been brought up about what is said on a wrestling podcast, and a jury found that you know what, it's probably not defamation, and so it's going to be that much harder for someone to bring a case like this to trial again in the future. And so I, I, I was very relieved for everyone involved. Oh yeah, and our ad rates are now through the roof now that we have this benchmark that's been set. Uh, guys, uh, you two did tremendous uh, coverage the last week and a half. I encourage everyone to go over to WrestleZone.com. They've got interviews up with CM Punk and Colt Cabana just uh, moments after the decision was rendered. Uh, thanks so much, guys, uh, for joining us tonight. It was uh, great to have you on. And again, really great job with all this coverage. If it wasn't for you know wrestling media, I don't know how much of this would have been covered. I was very surprised by kind of the, the lack of media that was out there. And you guys were there every day. 
Dude, it's a team effort, John. You know that. You know that you are covering wrestling stuff that is happening in Canada very specifically uh, that we hear about here, and, and we're just trying to return the favor. You, I, I cannot exp- I cannot say this enough. You and Way are huge influences on what we do here, and yep. the fact that this happened is as much, I, I hope, a positive reflection on you all as, as much as it is the general wrestling media collective, but you guys have been kicking ass for a while. And I do appreciate the kind words. Again, I'm a, I'm a huge fan, and just the fact that y'all are talking so glowingly about it really makes my heart happy. Uh, every, everyone should be patting everyone on the back. It's how the, the media should be functioning, in my humble opinion. I, I, you know what? If we were all jerks, I would say, <laughs> and I don't know if you want to go off on this or not, <laughs> Man, I don't I go to off on this. But if, there, if we were all jerks, you could say almost that you know this was some kind of you know squared circle of jerks. <laughs> <laughs> Nick's had a I long day. I didn't know you were on the dirty pun route. <laughs> I knew I knew where I was going, and I got there. And I don't give a fuck. I did it. <laughs> you guys have a good evening. Thank you very much for joining us, and. Uh, the next case, uh, I'm sure we'll chat about it. There will be a next one, I'm sure, in the in the in the in the future. You can always guarantee some legal problems in the world of pro wrestling. Thanks yeah. again, guys. Thank Thanks, you. John. Again, uh, some great coverage at WrestleZone.com. Uh, I know that uh, Fightful.com. They also had a uh, Stephen Milhouse in there on Friday. He spoke or on Tuesday and spoke to Cabana and Punk as well. And really, way I think it was the wrestling media that was on top of this. I thought this was going to be a much widely focused upon case because of all the intersections it has. Popular pro wrestling star, especially in Chicago. Uh, The fact that you have a story involving a wrestling podcast, this extends to kind of media censorship and kind of policing of media. Um, I was kind of surprised that you take out the wrestling media. I don't know how much of this is getting out like we would have heard about a verdict and mm-hmm. there would have been very little uh, in between unless the the case transcript uh is made available hmm yeah yeah well i'm glad that this took place in chicago a place that's relatively accessible for a, a, a number of at least the people at wrestle zone so um very interesting story i think one that i think history will look back at as uh a real, I think, potential um, danger zone, really, for for wrestling journalism. So I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad this result. I'm curious how much of this Cabana will discuss um, coming out of well, this. He's already selling a shirt based off of it. So, oh, what does the shirt say? I haven't seen it. Uh, it is. Uh, it was immediately put up by by Pro Wrestling Tees. Unbelievable! Uh, like the moment this this thing was announced, and it's uh, basically a Cole Cabana face. That says Scott Free on it. Oh my God! So uh, you know the man needs to. Probably Do you think have they to... had a backup shirt in case the decision came the, down the well, other way? Well, Pro Wrestling Tees claims that this was designed by their designer like in three minutes, right after the announcement of the decision. So uh, I, you know, I, I mean, listen, it's. I don't think it's any secret that you know lawyer fees are expensive. We don't know how much of this will will be covered um, by. Yeah, by that anything, was not brought so. up. The fact of uh, do Punk and Cabana recoup any of the legal fees? This was three and a half years of legal fees. You know, if you're CM Punk, maybe you have a lot a bit less to worry about. But I certainly feel like somebody like Cole Cabana if 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 there's a reason to support him, there it is. Scott Free. Uh you know, I could understand it. 
this does look like a shirt that was designed in about three minutes. So, <laughs> uh, but I think it's going to sell really well. Um, yeah. And on top of this, we have punk fighting on Saturday. Yeah. Um, it's unbelievable to me. I, I remember the weekend before this trial started and I was trying to get clarification if the trial was actually going to start and it was, um, very hard to get information and Tuesday the trial begins and I was stunned that a week and a half out from his fight that he was going to be in court. And here he was mm. up until Tuesday in court and he's going through a weight cut. He's training for this fight on Saturday. Yeah. Mind blowing. Win or lose, I mean, at least this week hasn't completely gone to shit for him. And it could turn into a really great week for him. So, you know, I think, uh, what is it, three, four days to go before the fight? Uh, hopefully his training has been good. I would love the behind the scenes, you know, kind of insight into how his training has been over the past several weeks, uh, past week. Really? Maybe he'll do an interview about all of this. I think, I'm sure he would at some point. Do you see Cabana being. See, this is the thing I, I don't like about these cases is that even though someone like a cabana gets through this, look at the toll it's taken. Look at the mental anguish. And I mean, he's he's moved away from the standard interview format on his podcast. But do you feel, you know, you go through something like that. Does it make you gun shy that, you know, if someone says something controversial, I'm not going to put it out there. And that's where that's the really the negative effect this has on. Media and journalism, and while Cabana is not a traditional journalist, I mean, this extends to other people that, you know, if there's the threat of reliving something like this, you're going to squash something that might be of interest to the public. I would say anybody who does interviews for a living, you know, and and I guess under this uh, uh, trial, anybody who releases an interview that they do is publishing that interview and at least uh, was argued, you know, would be liable uh, for anything that 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 was said, so mm, going forward, him in particular, would he be? I, it's kind of hard for me to answer for him. Um, I I mean, as a result of this uh, decision, though, I feel like everything's kind of just going on as normal. Like at least for you and I, does it make you more self conscious? Um, I don't think so. I don't listen. It would be one thing. Like, I'm not going to ever um, – it, it's a big difference between interviewing someone and, like, maliciously putting out content that is designed to to slander somebody. But but who's to decide what the difference is, you know? Right. And I think that that's a big part of this case is that I don't think you can bestow all of that into an interviewer. If If Jimmy Kimmel has an actor on – yeah. Like you can't be necessarily responsible for what they are saying. And that was always my stance in this case was that whatever Punk said is what Punk said, but um it, it to me was yeah. pulling in pulling in Cabana into this where I didn't feel um any liability should have been placed at his feet. Um mm-hmm. if anything on this podcast, if you go back and listen, he was the one kind of going out of his way to say, I'm gonna try and play devil's advocate here. I think he was trying to be fair, even in a situation where he's interviewing his best friend. Um so I don't think this interview either was the perfect example to extrapolate to something that you or I do, for instance. Um where you know, this was two friends essentially doing uh Oh, you don't know how you don't know what I'm about to say about this edition of SmackDown. I might just Blow your mind. Oh, well, you might have to consider editing uh, some well, of this. Well, so. maybe you have some strong thoughts about yeah. the, the medical staff. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Well, that was the case. I'm sure we're going to be talking about it. Um, I, I think that this is something that will be revisited frequently. And I think a lot more is going to be written on and looked back in hindsight on this case um, and what happened. I think when the court transcript eventually, hopefully comes out, we'll have further clarity on it. And yeah, I think that this is um, yeah a very important story to have followed in wrestling, media, and journalism. So let us get into SmackDown from Tuesday night in Corpus Christi, Texas, which I've got to say, for a Corpus Christi crowd, I thought they were above average. Corpus Christi, typically not a, a very heated audience, but I thought they were perfectly acceptable here on the yeah. show. I mean, I personally don't necessarily go into different shows expecting, you know, I, I guess certain shows I do, but uh, this really didn't seem out of the ordinary in terms of crowd reaction to me. I had some other notes I wanted to talk about just before SmackDown. Sure. I think I should do that right now. Yeah, okay. Um, first of all, um, with Nia Jax on Monday night, we we saw the kind of babyface positioning of Nia Jax. So in speaking with one person with the company, they were informing me that last week was it, in this feud with Nia Jax and Ronda Rousey, Nia Jax was never supposed to turn heel. And as it was described to me, was that last week, um, Nia Jax basically just went too far with the heel act. And I think people took that as a heel turn last week. The design of this program is to be two baby faces with tension. And maybe that's Nia subtly playing this role. But the goal is she is supposed to be a baby face after all of this. And Monday was described to me as kind of a course correction on the prior week. So that is kind of where... They want these two figures to be, and that it looks like at the end of this title program, they still want Nia in a babyface light. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, I I can see the reasoning, but I feel like the feud suffers when you have uh, Nia attempt to be a babyface on the level of Ronda. I think just we saw what the what what the response was to see, seeing Nia Jax play a babyface in the Alexa feud. It's, it's really tough to have a giant, you know, monster opponent be considered uh i guess i don't know on uh, on the same level of of uh i don't know attraction of uh you know to an uh, as a baby face as as a somebody smaller so i think the feud suffers will suffer as a result of it i mean that's how i took monday at least yeah well we'll see what they do next week on the go home segment between the two and how it's positioned going in and one other thing on the authors of pain is apparently one of them uh is going through some kind of visa issue and that's why they weren't available for the battle royal on monday um so that seems to be their status at the moment that is all. So let's get into SmackDown from Tuesday night, Corpus Christi, Texas. Carmella came out to start the show, and I guess because of some of the awful television we have watched involving Sami Zayn and Bobby Lashley, there was heightened interest for what Carmella was going to expose about Asuka. And uh, by the end of this segment, I don't know what the thought was, because it was Carmella coming out, stating that Asuka is not who you think she is. They aired a promotional video for Asuka. Uh, putting over the undefeated streak. And then we got a video about the real Asuka that focused on her loss to Charlotte. And she has been shattered. So we got two video packages on Asuka. And that was that was it. The expose was that Asuka has not been the same since WrestleMania. 
she is no longer the unbeatable force. In fact, she lost to Charlotte. She lost her first tag team match, first match on SmackDown in a tag team match. And then they showed clips from a Mandy Rose match, which I believe Asuka actually won. But, I mean, Carmella only showed the lowlights for Asuka in that match. So, making the case that now everybody is ready for Asuka. So, she's mocking the fans, um, points out one fan that was drooling. And then Asuka comes out to confront Carmella. But Mandy Rose and Sonya Deville, they come out first. And then Rose calls Asuka a shadow of her former self, admits that she beat her last week. And then Deville says that Asuka... There's just enough left of her for Sonya to take her out. And Carmella says that the defeated Asuka can't take them both on, so she should get an Uber and leave. This prompted Paige to come out and make a handicap match with DeVille and Rose against Asuka with Carmella going to commentary. So this segment, you know, I mean, it was not racist, uh, (laughs) as we might have uh, assumed that it would be. Uh, and it wasn't really all that offensive, but as a result, I would say it's not really, it wasn't really effective at all. Like, certainly not worth the hype that they were trying to push, uh, this segment with. Like, this was involved, this was the second big attraction in the commercial, was this reveal. Mm -hmm. So, uh, ultimately quite forgettable. So we had the handicap match, uh. Um, they got the advantage on Asuka after DeVille landed some kicks. Rose came in, applied a rear chin lock. Carmella distracted her from the floor with the title, and this allowed DeVille to attack her from behind. Uh, Carmella was moonwalking on the announcer's desk, went through a commercial break. Uh, there was a running drop kick from Asuka to Rose, released German. Then there was a spot where DeVille ran the ropes and went to duck a kick, and in doing so, got rocked with this knee to the forehead by Asuka, and she looked like a cartoon character with stars orbiting her head as she reacted to this. Uh, but recovered, speared her for a two count, and seemed okay. But they, this, we replayed this, and it looked like she just cracked her in the head. Um, there were uh, knees from DeVille uh, to the chest, and then DeVille tries to outgrapple her, but it ends with Asuka applying the Asuka lock and submitting DeVille. Um, Kind of a heightened pace at the end between DeVille and Asuka before the submission finish. I thought Asuka and DeVille actually showed some good glimpses of of, of, uh, of work together. And they, they were kind of showcasing more of a, a complex grappling style that I was slightly uh, you know, more interested to see. Um, so, Which DeVille probably has a, yeah. a better ability than most women on the roster to be able to mm-hmm. exchange with yeah, Asuka. Definitely. Much of the focus of the match was, though, placed on Carmella on commentary. And Carmella is somebody who who is just... He, she's very good at being annoying, but at times it feels like that's all she really knows how to do. And I say that because, I mean, she's got some ability to draw heat, but I feel none of that heat uh, translating to, into this rivalry with Asuka. And... I mean, personally, I feel very little reason to cheer for Asuka in this feud. I feel like that's partly because I think Asuka's sort of been poorly booked as of late. Um, But they also aren't really giving her that much character development. They aren't really letting Asuka speak, nor do that much. Um, But I think so much of it, too, depends on Carmella, because feuds like this really depend on the heel or Asuka's opponent in order to really drive interest. I think Charlotte was able to do that at WrestleMania, but Carmella to a much smaller degree. Like, it feels like she she's just basically no-selling Asuka as a threat at all. So, I mean, 
she's questioned about Asuka and commentary and Carmella just kind of typically defaults to her kind of, uh, you know, diluted confidence and doesn't really answer, doesn't really come across like she's scared of Asuka. Really, it's, it's a, it's, there's very, seems to be very little meat to this feud. I always look at, um, someone that can cut a promo. That's a completely different skill set than being on commentary. And I think sometimes we, just assume a great promo makes someone. I don't, I don't but I, even her promos, I don't think have been anything good for for this feud. You know, I think her delivery is fine. You can argue the content, but I think she's significantly better promo, and it's kind of just. I just heard her take that to the commentary table, and it was just her one-liners vo- and her voice is fine, but like she, they've yet to really present any real su- substance for for me wanting to see this match. Afterwards, Carmella got into the ring. And Rose came from behind Asuka, ate a spinning back fist, and that allowed Carmella to cheap shot Asuka from behind with the title and ended the segment. Miz is in the locker room practicing Miz Jitsu. And in walked Mr. Bootiesworth with a monocle, and he had pancakes. And then the New Day walked in from behind with their Pancake Power t-shirts, which it really looked like the, uh, the font has been taken from DuckTales. Uh, sir. Look yeah, kind of similar. Sure, it looks similar to that, yeah. They have Mr. Bootiesworth's uh, hat with their names in the hat for Miz to blindfold himself and pick the name that will be in the ladder match. So as they blindfold Miz, they take the names out of the hat, and instead Miz puts his hand into the hat that is full of pancake batter that Miz throws a tantrum over and wipes it all over Mr. Bootiesworth. Yeah, I mean, this was, I thought, fine kids' humor, you know? It it felt like adults kind of playing uh, characters in a Bugs Bunny cartoon. Luke Harper and Carl Anderson had a match that lasted seconds, where Harper swarmed him at the start. It was all Harper until he was caught with a schoolboy. Anderson wins with the tease that maybe Anderson and Gallows can win the tag titles from the Bludgeon Brothers. They won't, but that was the design here. I thought a pretty surprising result because I can't recall uh, Harper nor uh, Rowan taking too many pinfalls since they've come back up uh, as as the Bludgeon Brothers. So I really don't hate it. I mean, I think uh, Gallows and Anderson certainly need something ahead of this match. Uh, But I'll say it's still a match that has received very little development and I can't really say I'm all that interested in this one either. Will we get both tag title matches on the kickoff from Ron Smackdown? Probably not. They are. We'll, we'll find out. Uh, Naomi's with Jimmy Uso. It, it doesn't matter. We have to watch everything. No, I guess you're right. Yeah. Naomi was backstage with Jimmy Uso. Naomi cut a promo. She's going to snatch Lana bald, and she will snatch the briefcase. Jimmy says they are the husband and wife that run SmackDown, uh, and they're going to take on Aiden English and Lana, who I don't think are staking that claim that they are the husband and wife of SmackDown. They're not, no. No. It's, it's Rusev. Hey, why do they have Texas since day one t-shirts? Uh, because they are from, well, they trained in Houston. Um, I think I don't think they're originally from Texas, though. Yeah. And they were in Texas so. tonight, so. Oh, okay. Yes. It's interesting, yeah. I mean, I was on Shop Zone. I know there's some. Well, not Naomi. Naomi was not trained in Texas, but the Usos were by uh, Umaga. Is that day one, though? No, it probably would have been day, like, a couple thousand. Hmm. Um, Jimmy Uso and Naomi against Aiden English and Lana. English and Lana charged at them, got dumped to the floor, set up a commercial break. 
After the break, Naomi went for this pescado to the floor, and she overshot, and Aiden English caught her as she was on her way to going straight down headfirst into the ground, and Aiden was... It it looked fine, like, by the end of it. uh, She landed fine. Lana broke up a cover by Jimmy, slapped him, then Jimmy hosted... uh, Hoisted Naomi up over and onto Lana. English teased a running hip attack, but is stopped by a Naomi high cross. And then Jimmy super kicks, pins English, and English is clutching his throat after the super kick. Uh, so the tease is that perhaps he is not able to sing any longer after the super kick, or it's been his vocal cords have been damaged. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I I felt like Lana had probably too much control uh, for way too long on live TV. So I. I I wasn't a big fan of this match, uh, but I do like Naomi and Jimmy as a tag team. I thought the crowd was uh, pretty engaged throughout this this whole thing, um, you know. But I'll say, like for a time filler feud, I kind of got a little bit confused because last I saw, or at least like of Lana as a single star, she was very much positioned as a babyface. Her making into the Money in the Bank was a crowd, you know, uh, cheering moment. Uh, Lana Day, Lana Day. Everybody was really happy, but uh, in the in, in this kind of subplot of this Naomi Jimmy Uso feud, she's been very much positioned as a heel. So uh, I think it maybe kind of confuses the audience about what they should be doing. She was outdanced. I mean, that would right. that would wreak havoc on your more on your morality. Mm-hmm. Paige was in the back. We got a rare backstage contract signing, like this was a uh, mm-hmm. Hogan Warrior or something. AJ is seated with Shinsuke Nakamura. Paige says there will be a winner at Money in the Bank. Unless we get the same outcome as the last one, where both men are down and there's a double countout. Mm-hmm. That could happen in a last man standing match. AJ says that he knows, that Nakamura knows that he can't beat him. And all his tricks are not going to work. He's going to walk out as champion. Nakamura yawns like he's just sat through a Chris Jericho promo and he's Tetsuya Naito. AJ signs the contract and then Nakamura complains that the pen is out of ink. So he asks to borrow AJ's pen. He says this pen is broken. And AJ gets so angry, he slaps Nakamura and he has to be held back by Dean Malenko and Adam Pierce. And he is brought out of the room. And then Nakamura reveals that he had a pen the whole time in his jacket pocket, playing AJ like a violin, and signed the contract and says, last man standing. I thought Nakamura was great. He is so entertaining just doing the smallest things, you know? He's kind of got a real Heath Ledger, Joker-like type of, you know, um, maniacal charisma. And it, like really kind of makes you a little bit nervous about what this guy has you know in his brain uh in, in a match so i think it was like a very good simple segment that added to my anticipation for this match and really it established that aj has nakamura has been able to get under aj's skin with aj slapping nakamura i also thought it was a nice added touch doing this backstage i thought this it lended itself well to Nakamura's delivery to be in the back for this because there was a lot of subtle stuff and the facial reactions. I really like the idea to do this backstage. I did too. Yeah. Uh, then we had Charlotte Flair against Becky Lynch. I thought this was a very good match that these two had for for a television match. Um, they each catch the other's leg and then lightly let it down, which was a spot that was done several times throughout the Best of the Super Juniors. Uh, they went through a break. 
Becky went for a tilt-a-whirl into the disarmor, but then it's blocked, took chops from Charlotte, and then Becky responded with uppercuts. Becky hit a leg drop off the top for a two-count, and then the disarmor is countered with a roll-up. Charlotte landed a spear, Becky rolls to the floor, and then there's a Pescado onto Becky. Charlotte tries the moonsault, lands on Becky's knees, and goes for the figure eight, which is turned into the disarmor, and Charlotte taps out. And Becky helped up Charlotte after the match. They hugged, and they put out a graphic online that in their singles matches, Charlotte is uh, four and three against Becky. Oh, is that right? It's that close. So the best of seven series ended in the oh, last match, but okay. nonetheless, Becky won here. I thought it would have been a lot more one-sided for Charlotte, but but I guess not. Uh, well, I, mean, I don't know how accurate this stat is, but are we counting house shows or uh, probably not? That would be my assumption. Hmm, interesting. But I like this te- television match. I thought it was good. I thought it was a decent match. Yeah, I mean, to me, I thought the finish was a bit more uh, made the match more significant because I think they've been telling the story about how it feels like everybody's on a downward trend in the women's division. It's Asuka, it's Charlotte now, and it's Becky. And to me, this felt like uh, the beginning of a bit of a redemption story for her. Dasha was backstage. Joe didn't even let her get a question out. He just took over here and asks if she is looking at a vicious man or a man with a moral compass that is backwards. A backwards moral compass. Right. That sounds awful. Mm. Yeah. That means you're... It's an evil compass. He, uh, He put Daniel Bryan to sleep last week. And they replayed the footage of him climbing the ladder, grabbing the briefcase last week, and just cut a promo on the rest of the participants. Fine promo. Yeah, a good promo from Joe, I think, as we expect. Um, Maybe not all that memorable, but but, I mean, fine. Totally fine. Next week, there will be a Women's Money in the Bank Summit to coincide with the day that the U.S. and North Koreans are meeting. For their own oh, summit. Oh, okay. okay. Well, I get it. I get it. A lot of summits. Mm-hmm. All of equal importance. Big Cass comes out, and they did, like, the old school, like, platform where Cass got onto the stage in front of the crowd. Like, this was right out of uh, 1990, and Renee Young playing Gene Okerlund. Right, yeah. I really liked uh, kind of the blocking of this, doing this differently. I thought between the backstage segment with this contract signing and then this... Uh, I just thought, you know, it was something different, and I like different. Mm-hmm. So Cass proceeded to cut this lengthy promo that he was backstage at WrestleMania 30, and he was walking behind Daniel Bryan in the back after he had just won the title, and he could not believe that this pathetic little man is the WWE champion. He says a good big man will always beat a good little man, except the backlash. He doesn't feel bad for Bryan because he asked to come back but Brian didn't realize he'd have a seven-foot shadow following him everywhere. Brian has never been in the ring with anyone as big as him, as educated as him, and a star of his magnitude. And no one holds a grudge like Cass does. And he's going to rip Brian's arms off his body, beat his body like a snare drum, snap his legs like twigs so he can never put the heel hook on him, which... Reminder to cast, the legs are, I, I don't know um, if that would completely prevent a heel hook. Uh, I don't know exactly. How I guess it would depend on, you know, your your arms and upper body strength. But it would be very difficult without legs, I guess. Mm, yeah, yeah. Anyway, Brian can go back to playing a garden gnome on Total Bellas. 
and a pathetic little man like Brian cannot survive in a big man's world. Mm-hmm. This was a uh, this felt like Vince McMahon would have this speech on his wall. Well, I think Cass is actually a pretty good talker. Uh, you know, good delivery. Mm, I'll say though, this character really feels like it's very much lifted from like a seventies or eighties. It's it's a relatively kind of cliched wrestling villain who just his only mission statement is that he is big and that he can beat small men. Uh, I think it's fine. I think Cass is doing a decent job, but I think to really connect with the modern audience, he does need to go a bit more and yeah, just update it and maybe make it a bit more personal. Is Brian the Ant Man? Of the WWE universe? Um, not, I don't think so. Not really. <laughs> Dasha interviewed Sinkara, and he was snubbed last week by his good friend Andrade Cien Almas, who we learned he has known since he was 14 mm-hmm. and considered him like a brother. Yeah. A brother. This relationship has intensified. Mm-hmm. But then something happened. And Zelina Vega interrupts, assuming that that something meant her, as I guess she was eavesdropping. She says the best thing that happened to him was her, and nothing happened for Andrade when Sin Cara was his role model, which is a fact. And then Zelina added, he even hid behind a mask, referencing his La Sombra days. Yeah. So there you have it. The the CMLL... um, world exists in the WWE. Well, I don't know how, how real this relationship is between Sin Cara and Andrade from the age of 14. Uh, could be. I don't know. But whatever. But I, I, I do really enjoy it as a as a, 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 a an establishing of, of history between the two. I think it's a really good first feud for CN. Uh, I think taking somebody like a Sin Cara who's been doing nothing, uh, this is something that's kind of perfect for a character like that. Uh, hopefully the match is good, and hopefully the win looks strong enough. For I, I think they'll have a fine match. It's only on TV next week they're doing. And then Andrade attacked him from behind, killed him. I mean, I like the storyline. I wouldn't even hate it if they took this for a few matches, extended this for a whole month. Well, Money in the Bank looks packed, but maybe they can fit whatever it is, a 12th match on there. Mm-hmm. And then the main event was New Day against The Miz, Samoa Joe, and Rusev. So we have all the possible SmackDown participants in the ladder match in one main event. Uh, Samoa Joe hit a big urinagi to Woods to set up the commercial break. Uh, Joe also had his left elbow taped up. Uh, they come back. They're in control of Woods for a prolonged period of time until he tagged in Kofi, who attacked The Miz, hit the boom drop, and then a distraction led to Miz hitting a DDT, but then can't do the skull-crushing finale. It gets blocked. Blind tag is made from Rusev. Big E comes in, hit this big overhead belly-to-belly, and then the running spear to Rusev is stopped when he got his knee up. Uh, Joe hit another urinagi out of the corner, this time to Big E. Woods made the save, hit a Topicon hero to Rusev on the floor, and then Kofi teased a springboard into the ring, but instead landed on Joe on the floor with a trust fall. Um, actually, onto Miz. Yeah, this thing looked awesome because it was caught in the hard camera, and Kofi was diving from the middle uh, of the ring, so it looked like he was diving into the ring, but because of the camera being directly uh, on, like, in front of Kofi, 
you can't really tell. It looks like he's just jumping up and then he never falls down. In fed, in, instead, he falls to the outside. And Graves called it an optical illusion. I, I, I mean, I thought the same thing. I've never really seen anything like it on TV. They look cool. And then the New Day was trying to set up for the midnight hour when Joe pulled Woods down to the floor with the coquina clutch. Kingston then took a machka kick and Biggie missed Miz running shoulder first into the post. Joe and Rusev held Biggie. Miz took the pancakes, brought them into the ring. But then as he tossed them, he missed and hit Rusev and Joe with the pancakes. They killed the Miz, left them for dead in the ring. And the New Day recovered, hit the midnight hour with Biggie pinning the Miz to end the show. I thought a pretty entertaining main event. Um, you know, I'm I'm impressed that they managed to protect the appropriate people heading into this pay per view, without resorting to a disqualification finish. Yes, what a talent. Yes. Um, overall, SmackDown. I mean, this was not an earth shattering show, but kept my interest for most of it. I will say that I I dreaded uh, another Raw, so that was a positive. Um, I enjoyed the uh, Nakamura Cena, yep. uh, sorry Nakamura AJ uh, um, uh, contract signing. Um, you know, other things on the show. No, There's nothing really all that offensive. The Carmella Asuka thing ended up being a bit of a dud, but at least it wasn't painful. Um, and you know, it. I'll say for the most part, uh, a lot of these matches with the money in the bank looming feel very uh, unimportant. Like there's there's nothing they're fighting for. It's like everyone's just trading wins and uh-huh. keeping everyone just all these different combinations. And next week we'll get a summit. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's probably been too much time in between these last two pay-per-views because it feels like we've been – these several weeks we've been killing a lot of TV time. Which I go uh-huh. back to with the, the whole television deals that if you were to eliminate the network pay-per-views as your big building up points um, – Think about this show that, like, this is a six-week gap. Imagine if we were not building to pay-per-views and it was just week-to-week. I think this company would have a real struggle in adjusting how they structure their television and what to peak to. Um, Even this, six weeks, like, that is not an ungodly long period of time, but... You feel it in WWE, mainly because of the amount of hours that means. That's, it's a lot of television to produce, and not all of it is going to be super urgent to be following. Correct. Um, we got our feedback up super late, so uh, do we just want to read the one we've got? Yeah, let's do it. Oh. We got a Brandon from Oshawa. First of all, uh, a rating, a rating, a very truncated rating system. Uh, several of you who voted rated this show a 6.67. And our lone piece of feedback, apologies for getting the, the thread up late, but uh, we had an interview to do earlier. Brandon from Oshawa says, I felt like this was two different shows. I found the first hour to be very weak, maybe the weakest hour SmackDown has had since the Superstar Shake-Up. Wow. I did not need to see the first 30 minutes focusing on the Carmella Asuka feud. The second hour I thought was excellent. A couple decent matches, a quick and effective backstage contract signing, and Andrade and Sin Cara were all great. My highlight, though, was the big cast interview. Not for the promo itself, because I thought it was crap, but for the location. I'm a big fan of using different locations in the arena. This reminded me of the old Mean Gene interviews when they'd stand on the stage at the side near the entrance. I thought it was fresh, and there were some great camera angles as well. I have a question about Dominion. How long do you guys think Okada Omega will go? And how long do you think it should go? Oh, good question. Um, I think it's going minimum 60. Do you agree? Mm. Or do you think they're going to surprise us? I don't think they have to, but, mm. you know. Mm. 
Oh, man. Is that... Mm, I'm going to say less. I'm going to say under 60. I mean, it's to me, it's, it's less of a challenge than last year where it was... Um, it was pretty much like going into it. Like you knew how long they were how gonna big be. On. Is, how long how many matches are on this card? Nine? I mean, can you go sixty minutes with the nine card? I guess was the last Dominion yeah, match I'm, that long? You can go that long if you want. It's hmm. it's um It almost just seems daunting for me. I mean the show like, think about it this way. The show will start at four PM uh in Osaka. So a six hour show, you're yeah. talking ten PM sure. that they get out of there. Right. So they can, they can go as long as they want. I could see it going 60. I could see it going a little over. Um, do you have any thoughts on on the booking for that? Because this is the last time uh, you and I will have a chance to speak about it. Oh, yeah. Uh, I believe, you know... Mm, what I, would you like to see? I predict Okada will win 2-1. to one. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I think Okada takes it to Wrestle Kingdom. Yeah. Maybe I'll go out on a limb and say Omega. I I don't. I won't be upset with either outcome. I think that you have two great options of whether you end this reign or keep it going. Because mm-hmm. I think you could easily make a strong argument to keep the title reign going. Not broken. Don't need to fix it. Um, but I could also see the argument that Omega feels like the guy that you could put it on, and it creates a lot of fresh matchups. Um, makes that Cow Palace show very important as well with his first title defense. So. There's positives on either side. All right. That's going to wrap up the show. But we are going to be back on Wednesday. Uh, myself and WH, we are going to be coming at you Wednesday afternoon with Post Puroresu. We'll be previewing Dominion. We're going to get um, all of WH's thoughts on the best of the Super Juniors tournament. We're going to chat about Stardom's Cinderella tournament that wrapped up at the end of April. Uh, we're going to chat news from all Japan, from NOAA, all over the place. Dominion. Uh, Dominion will be previewing. Yes, we'll go through that entire card as well. And then WH is coming back Saturday to review that card with me for members of the Post Wrestling Cafe. And Wednesday night, big edition of Keep It 2000, Brian Mann and Nate Milton reviewing the August 7th episode of Nitro with Lance Storm, who challenges Booker T on that show for the WCW title. And on the feed right now is John's edition of Post Profile, our very first edition of Post Profile. This one on Ken Shamrock. Do you want to talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah. Um, I took an interview I recently did with Ken Shamrock, and I tried to turn it into this kind of mini audio doc looking at Ken Shamrock, a lot of you know the, the highs and lows of his career, um, and someone I think very historically significant within mixed martial arts. So uh, that is up there. It's about 18 minutes in length. And if you enjoyed any of these kinds of audio documentaries I did on the MMA report, it's kind of done in that style. And uh, the feedback's been very positive so far. So uh, thank you if you have checked it out. And it is up there on the main post wrestling feed if you want to give that a listen. Uh, so lots of shows coming up this week. Uh, Way will be back on Friday with me as we review King of the Ring 1993 on the Post Wrestling Cafe, uh, which was chosen by Ian Kushner. Lots of shows this week, and you can keep track of all of them at postwrestling.com. So that is it for us, everyone. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll speak with you later this week.